Uh, my name is Eric Baker, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church, and so we want to say thank you for gathering with us as we have sought to worship Jesus and to make disciples and to multiply. Um, it is my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors here and um, often uh, used in my gifts uh, and calling to be the teaching pastor here. And if you are new to mission today, then we are working through a letter inside the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And we've titled this sermon series called Fight the Drift. And in doing so here at Mission, um, not that we don't ever do topical type sermons, but we work through books of the Bible. And as we're working through books of the Bible, if we get to a certain text and we need to take a deep dive into that text, or if it opens up an opportunity to speak into different things, then we use that opportunity to do so. Uh, we just don't simply typically pick out uh, topical sorts of things uh, to talk about, but we believe that if you rightly divide, preach the Word of God, then you're going to hit almost every topic uh, that maybe you and I have questions about or that our culture has questions about. And so uh, today what we're doing is, is we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses uh, 9 through 20. It's, and actually we're going to be spending about six weeks total just in those sections um, before we do some things in January, excuse me, July, I'm already skipping ahead in my life, um, doing some things in uh, July and then uh, we'll pick back up and, and do some more things in regards to 1 Corinthians um, in August. And so uh, with that, please follow along with me. Uh, today at the very beginning of this is definitely uh, more of a per se talk lecture. I've got to establish um, some cultural understanding and simultaneously some theological understanding. And if you have any questions about anything, or if I felt, if you felt like I've not brought clarity to this matter, I would, one, ask you to come speak with me. Also, that you would go and be a part of a missional community, as Justin was saying, an MC, where this week you will be able to be in a smaller group of people and to discuss and to talk about these matters, because I am sure um, by the end of this today, there will be many questions, all right? So, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for reading the word of the Lord here today. For many Christians, for those who are truly Christians, those whom Jesus has saved, um, it is as though we went to sleep not too long ago and that we woke up uh, in what an author and scholar, uh, Carl Truman, would call a strange new world uh, for wiser folks. It is like waking up in Oz. For younger folks, it is uh, like waking up in the Matrix. And for you, um, Generation XYZ, LMNOP, now I've said them, say them with me. Uh, I have no idea what that is like for you. Go watch those other two movies and you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we went to sleep and we've awakened where black is no longer white and white is no longer white and or black is no longer black and black is white and white is black and up is down and down is up and uh, man is woman, woman is man and... Um, Gas was 69 cents a gallon when I was young. Now it's, what, $5 a gallon? Right. 
People can't find jobs, but everybody's hiring for like $15 to $20 an hour. Right? It's strange, isn't it? Ryan T. Anderson, the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, says this, in this change in humanity that's taking place, people do not think the way that they used to think. And he says this, modern man, however, seeks to be true to himself rather than conform his or her thoughts, feelings, and actions to objective reality, man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth. What you believe to be true as an individual is true because that's what you feel. That is what you believe. Robert Bella, an American scholar, has coined the phrase expressive individualism. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feelings and intuition that should, be, should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. So the way that you feel on the inside needs to be expressed with your body in order for you to be your real self. Um, younger generations, I, it probably started with mine. I'm an, what's called an in-betweener. I'm an uh, in-between an X and a millennial. It's like, depending on who I'm hanging out with, depends on how I act. And this coined phrase is that we have people that want to be authentic. Authenticity is extremely important, and there's actually much wealth and value in that realization of authenticity. But we, we must understand something, though, is that in our current step, in our current place, in our current culture, authenticity has become the outward expression of your inward feelings. Self and the search for the real me or the real you in your case, has become the ultimate purpose of humanity. What we are experiencing is the results of telling almost every child since the baby boomer generation, you can be whatever you want to be. And this is the byproduct of teaching people in generations that truth. You can be whatever it is that you want to be. Now, as a new Christian in 1997, um, I got involved with this Christian organization. It was essentially a youth group for college kids called Campus Crusade for Christ. They have now changed their name to Crew. In that, I was discipled, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I learned about spiritual multiplication, learned about worshiping Jesus, learned about the Bible, changed my major to being a religious studies major, eventually became a pastor. I traveled the world being a missionary with Campus Crusade for Christ. And one of the things that they shared with me way back when was in this little bitty book called The Four Spiritual Laws. And eventually, um, uh, there was also another book. We called it The Bird Book because it had a bird on the front of it. Um, but it was a book called the Hol about the Holy Spirit. 
Would you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Or what does it mean to be experienced the Spirit-filled life? And in that, there was this little diagram that I have used over and over and over again with my students at Western, and I've used it over and over over again here at at uh, at Mission. And so, for some of you, this you've going to hear hear this before. You've heard this before. But in that, I, I saw this diagram of a train. And so, Maddox, will you click that over? And in that, we were taught very on, early on in our understanding of who Jesus is and how to study the Bible was that um, much of our life is like this locomotive, that we needed to understand that within a Christendom and within life is that the driving force about our lives needed to be the facts. It needed to be truth. From that truth about who Jesus is, what the Bible says, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all these things that if Jesus would save you, he would impart to you the ability to have faith in those facts. So as a Christian, you would have factual information. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has accomplished. And we need to put our faith, which is another name for saying your trust, in those facts. And then from that facts, from that faith, then your feelings would come in behind those things. I love this illustration. But we no longer live in a world where people are driven by factual information. Even those who argue from the position of science will quickly leave their science at the front door when asked certain questions. We now live in a society where feelings, which should be the caboose, is the driving force in our lives. Even those of us who have gathered in this room wrestle with this almost every moment, if not every day, with how we feel. And then we put that feeling on our faith, or what we trust, and also what the facts are. Well, I just, it just doesn't feel right that the earth is round. I just don't like the way that feels. So I'm going to say it's flat. When there is lots of evidence, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if you want to debate whether we landed on the moon in 1962, we can talk about that. Those shadows are weird, people. All right? But the earth is round. And as it's been coined and phrased, and we need to make sure that we say this with a level of humility, because it's often not said with a level of humility, is that facts don't really care about your feelings. Nor mine. But we need to understand this, that this is what our kids are growing up in. It's what your children are being raised upon. That's what they're being educated in. This is why there's a major discrepancy often between parents and teenagers and even older generations and young generations is that you must understand that we have awakened to a strange new world. We have awakened in Oz. We have awakened in the matrix where, again, up is not up or down is no longer down, where black is no longer black and where white is no longer white. Things have shifted in the mind frame. Why? Because how you feel trumps all authority, all facts. 
We are living in a world where feelings are God. Now, last week, last week we looked at this passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we talked about, and we're trying to establish, a theology of the body. It's extremely important for us to have a theology of the body, a, a study of, a belief of what it means to be a created being of God. We saw inside of these passages that what we do with our body matters. Also, what we don't do with our body matters. And that if we are in Christ, that means that you truly are a Christian, then we need to have uh, his uh, understanding of what are our bodies. That, that these just aren't these skin suits that you and I are walking away with that one day God is going to just completely disregard, but rather as he rose Christ in physical form in his body, such he will do you and I who are in Christ. Our bodies, they matter to the Lord, and the Lord matters to our bodies. We saw inside of this passage that it's extremely important for us there toward the, the very end of these verses to get this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Honor God, worship God in your body. What makes you who you are is a soul and a body. Those two things aren't separate from each other, but they make up who you are. And we saw this, that we had this responsibility, this, this great gift from God to honor God with our physical body. So what we eat matters, and what we do with our hands matters, and what we do with our feet. Be careful, little eyes, what you see and what you touch and what you hear. All these sorts of things matter to God, so therefore they should matter to us. Why? Because you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made by him. To understand that, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go all the way back to the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the creation of humanity, of what it means to be male and female. What does it mean to be in this body? And so quickly, if you'll go to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis tells us about these things. And if you have major problems with some things that I'm going to address here a little bit later, then you actually have a problem with Genesis 1.1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To be a Christian and to understand Christianity, if Jesus has saved you, is to come in again that this is factual information. In the beginning, the God of the Bible created the heavens and the earth. We put our faith and our trust in that belief that he is creator God. In Genesis 1.26, then God said, let's make man in our image. That plurality of the hour is in reference to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has always been. The Holy Spirit has always been. And in the very beginning, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were all involved in the making of man and woman in their image. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Later on, God in this creation will give them free reign. 
He establishes them as the princes and princesses of his earthly creation. He allows them to steward. They're to rule and they're to reign. They're to govern God's creation as the epitome of his creation. That he he demonstrates in humanity, in the creation of humanity, like his greatest creation in that he creates humanity and gives them, again, this opportunity to rule and reign throughout the earth. He tells them they can practically do whatever they want to do except for one thing, Genesis 2.16. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. You shall surely die. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. That means to make babies. To make lots of babies and fill the earth. Teaching them to honor God with their bodies. To honor God with everything they do. With the work of their hand. With the sweat of their um, lives. Just that, that all of their life would be in honor and worship to God. That they would make babies and they, they would teach them. Disciple them. Pastor them. Serve them. So that those babies would then do what? Take care of the earth, take care of its creation, honor God with their bodies as they steward the planet. God looked at all of this, and he says this over and over and over again in the book of Genesis, those first few chapters, that God created these things, and it was good. Created man and woman, and it was very good. So how do we go from that being in the presence of God, things being very good with God, and in our relationships to things being like they are today. Well, that too started way back when. How did the fall then affect our experience, our views, our beliefs, even uh, not just about our entire worldview, but also how you and I view our own bodies? Let's go to Genesis uh, chapter 3. Read along with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest ye die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was able to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, get this, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, thick leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. When they broke the law of God, God, this benevolent king, God, this creator, who formed them from the very dust of the earth, put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, and made woman from that creation, is that once he told them that if you eat of this, then you are going to die. Well, what does it mean then? Well, it, it means that they're going to spiritually uh, be separated from God. And that they would also physically die. Imagine this. If Adam and Eve does not eat of the tree of the garden uh, of, of the good and evil, then they live forever. 
but they ate. And notice, what is the first thing that they do? What is the first thing that they do? They tried to cover their what? Their bodies. Why? Because they were filled with what? Shame. Their eyes had awakened. They had awakened to realize, man, we have broken the very laws of God. And because of that, we need to cover our bodies. We are naked. Me and, and Adam and Eve are not the same. They're, uh, they, they are compatible. They are different. They were equal in value and dignity, but there are differences among them. And immediately in their sin, they must cover themselves. They must cover their bodies. Since that time, there's been this false heretical belief amongst many pagan nations, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that, um, that within, even in the city of Corinth that Paul is writing to, that such uh, philosophers uh, came up with these ideas, and all it was was the teaching of, of old beliefs as well, is that there's a great difference between a person's body and their soul, that pretty much whatever you do with your body doesn't have any real bearing on your soul. But is that what we see here? See, the pagan belief is, is that there can be something inside of you and that that can be different than what you do with your arms and legs and your eyes and your beliefs. And that's okay. Those two things are separate. That there's the outward appearance of you, but then there's the real you on the inside. Well, all of that goes completely contradictory to what we see in the teachings of creation of man and woman. This has greatly affected us. Spirit affected us. Because of the sins of Adam and Eve, then all of us are, guess what, born adrift. We are not born on what we're in the person and work of Jesus. We are born separated from him. Being you going out here, as we've often said, and stealing something doesn't make you a thief. No, the reality of what the scripture teaches us is because you are born into sin. We call this total depravity. That, that This is the state of original sin that what Adam and Eve, they, they represented all of humanity. And because of their sin, then you were not born good, but rather you are born as a sinful person. So because that's who you are, then you will seek to commit and be bent toward numerous amounts of sin. You can't help but do it. Why? Because you are sinful by, by nature. It's like you know, throwing a bunch of blood into the ocean and not expecting sharks to come. They're going to come. Why? Because it is their very nature to do so. Likewise is man and woman. We are prone toward living in a sinful desire, and we've become really creative at creating even more and more and more and more sins. Because we are sinful now by nature, and because we are separated from God, 
then there, there are some things that happen to our physical lives. What we were meant to live forever and ever and ever, amen, in the presence of God, walking with him in the cool of the day like Adam and Eve, but now we're kicked out of the garden. We're living separated from him. And because of that, our bodies are broken. You were broken. And I am broken. We get sick. I don't know how much Claritin a person can take, but I guarantee I've met my match in the last few months. We have COVID-19. We have have cancer. We've got cancer, not in person who, you know, Walks around smelling like an ashtray. Got some friends like that. They smoke several packs a day. Right? And so when they get cancer, what does everybody do? Man, that, that's terrible, but it's a horrific thing. But, but we know that that's what happens, but what else happens? People who've never smoked a day in their life get cancer. The people born with special needs. When you stub your toe or step on a leglo, it hurts. We probably all have some sort of scars on my body. I've got this scar from playing basketball one time and I, I, I went diving after a ball because, you know, I want to be like Mike and I hit a brick as an elementary school kid and I remember running back to my mom like this. <laughs> and getting there, and I was more afraid of going to the doctor to get it sewn up than I was that my, I mean, I have a gaping wound here. And my mom, who we all call Nana, uh, I, I, I just manipulated her with my tears, and she didn't take me, and we just let it naturally do Jesus' work. <laughs> and now I have this nasty scar. If you're under 40, you will not understand this, but if you're over 40, you know what it's like to go to bed completely normal and woke up, wake up with a sprained ankle or a hurt shoulder. We see this in our parents. Because they're getting older. Our bodies are broken. Why? Because... Because we are broken. And this brokenness will eventually lead to death. A physical death. And then comes judgment. Another way that we are broken because of the sin is, is what I'm calling mind and body dysphoria. What is mind and body dysphoria? What is that word? Dysphoria mean? Dysphoria means this. It's a state of unease or generalized dissatisfaction with life. It's a a state of feeling uneasy. It's a a state of feeling unhappy or, or unwell. That's what the word dysphoria means. Right now, many of you in this room are like, oh, I got that. 
Let me illustrate this to you. Many of us in this room, myself included, cards on the table, uh, struggle with what is known as mental illness. We're the most medicated people ever. And I'm not anti-medication, please don't hear me. But most of us in this room have mental dysphoria. Again, what is it? An unease or generalized dissatisfaction with life. A feeling of uneasy, unhappy, or unwell. I can't tell you how many conversations that you and I have had with each other about, man, how, how, how are you doing? Or sister, how are you doing? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm filled with anxiety. Parents, you've probably experienced this in your kids like generations beforehand have not. This overwhelming anxiety, fear that is found in younger generations. And it's not that it wasn't there in older generations, mind you, but they were told not to talk about it. That it was weak-minded. Some of you know this feeling that I'm talking about. That's all because of the brokenness of who we are. We also have body dysphoria. What do I mean by that? Many people, many of us in this room are walking around with some sort of body shame. Too skinny. I'm too fat. I'm too tall. I'm too short. My nose is too big. My nose is too small. My body isn't sexy enough to attract the right kind of people. My eyebrows is a one brow. My hair is the wrong color. I don't have enough muscles. I'm, I'm ugly. My voice is weird, or my laugh is weird. Or people make fun of me because my feet are too big. Many of us in, in this room, if we were actually really vulnerable with each other, many of us in our interactions and choices are actually made in your daily lives because of the way that you feel about your body. You have to sit in a certain place in the room. You don't want to be noticed. Maybe you avoid crowds or going to the swimming pool because you don't want to take your shirt off. Because there's something about yourself that you do not like. And I had this college friend who, by the time that I met him, had endured several years of an eating disorder because in middle school football, his coach just said to him, probably jokingly, but he didn't take it as a joke, hey man, you're getting a little bit chubby there, aren't you? And by the time that he became my friend, this dude looked like a Men's Health Magazine model. But all of that was in a reflection and a response because something that someone said in a drive-by statement that was embedded into that young man's mind that sent him on years of being anorexic.
When you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? Because of the way that you and I look into the mirror, due to stress, pain, suffering, etc., what do we do? Well, we'll run to a person, we'll run to a surgery, we'll run to a drug, we'll run to a drink, we'll run to a fantasy, we'll run to a food, all in hopes of trying to distract us or ease the dissatisfaction that we have with ourselves. You must understand that our emotional, like for me, it's, it's typically running to some sort of food. So I'm feeling down, and so instead of running to Jesus, trusting Jesus and the facts of who Jesus is, my temptation is, on the inward, when I'm myself in an unhealthy relationship with food, and so man, I'll run to food to make myself feel numb about how I really feel on the inside, which does what to my physical body? And then because I look at my physical body and I don't like what I see there, what do I do to make myself feel better? I run back to food. We're just trying to... Another way, and a current way, that we don't honor God with our bodies because of sin... It's what's known as gender dysphoria. We must understand that the historical definition of sex and gender for thousands of years were reflective of each other. What you were physically born with, XX, XY, you were male or female, was also what your gender was. That's why we have gender reveal parties. Right? That's why we have those parties is to reveal that this is the sex of the baby and what is the sex of the baby is equal to the gender of the baby. And it's only been between probably in the last hundred years, and I'm still trying to pinpoint it and it's debatable, but it's, it's within the last hundred years that people have begun to separate in our culture and in our world that sex and gender are no longer equal with each other. That you can be born a biological male, but if you are born a biological male, that doesn't mean that you are a male. Likewise, if you're born a biological female, then that doesn't matter um, because that's not who you really are. That there's the outside physical body, see this? But it's not who you are on the inside. And so ultimately what you need to do is get who you are on the inside to match who you are on the outside. Now, very quickly... Gender dysphoria is that feeling of discomfort that occurs in certain people who feel like their gender identity does not match their biological sex. This is why we'll often hear people and friends and neighbors say um, that I feel like I'm a man who's trapped in a, what, woman's body. Now, not everyone acts upon gender dysphoria. There's probably people in this room that are wrestling with those very things. It is a real medical issue. I'm not saying that it's biological, that you're born with this gene, but we can't discredit, just like we would not, real stress, real anxiety, real depression, 
real loss of hope in people, we cannot completely discredit that this is the way this is the way these people feel. Now, if you take that and then you begin to match out the way that a person feels about themselves in gender dysphoria, and then they begin to make those changes to their outward appearance and the way that they live their lives and the way that they expect you and I to interact with them, then that is what leads us to this belief and practice of what is known as being transgender. American Psychological Association says this about transgenders. Transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. These are friends. These are family members. These are neighbors who believe that they are experiencing gender dysphoria, that who they are and their physical biology, science, does not match who they are on the inside and so they go through the process. Now, even in our culture, it can begin at very young ages with hormone blockers. There's even a case that I read about this last week that in, in Australia, that parents signed and approved for a five-year-old to experience uh, what they now call sex or, or, or correction surgery. They live differently than their biological sex. This used to be illegal. In our culture, it used to be absolutely illegal to participate in this sort of behavior. And yet we now live in a culture that we've awakened to that has begun to move very quickly towards shifting uh, to embrace this belief and practice. As I've done research on this, it's been interesting to see interviews with people who will literally say when asked, can a woman, can a woman have male genitalia? And they will say yes. Can't, we live in a culture and a society where people will say that a man can get pregnant, that a man can breastfeed, but they don't like to be called it breastfeeding any longer. They want it to be called chest feeding because breast would imply that of a female perspective. That it's possible for a man now to have a menstrual cycle. And yet for thousands upon thousands of thousands of years, this was not seen to be acceptable or the reality. Even our president recently said that transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. If you go log on to, or create a Facebook account right now, then there are 58 different gender options for people to choose from. If you go home today and you have an iPhone and you say, um, I won't say this because it's going to do it on my phone, but if you say, hey, and then her name, what is gender? It will tell you that there are an infinite amount of genders because there are 
If there's 7 billion people on the planet, then literally there can be 7 billion different genders. And this all goes back to waking up in a strange new world where people believe things about their feelings inwardness that is different than the way that God has created them. And it's only going to become more prevalent. And so we must begin to ask ourselves, well, um, how, how then, Pastor, we begin as Christians and the church to respond um, to our friends who are dealing with, with depression and stress and anxiety. Pastor Eric, how, how do we deal with our friends who are feeling bodily shame for the way that they look into the mirror? And this is real pain. This is real agony for people as they hate the people that they're seeing in the mirror. Pastor Eric in church, how, how do we handle living in a culture uh, where people, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, um, believe that they are, are a, a different sex than they are um, biologically? Pastor Eric, how do we handle living with or next to neighboring, working with a, a person that is transgender. Here today, if you're wrestling with depression and stress, anxiety, any of those things, may the Lord be your hope today. It is a thorn in your flesh. It is a cross for you to bear, and you may bear it your entire life. But there is coming a day where that will be no more. May you stop pretending around us that everything is just okay. May you cling to Jesus. May you have a, a regular diet of His Word and prayer. May you find Christian community. May you, in your missional community, be honest in sharing exactly where you are. Don't lie by saying the southern thing. Everything is good. I'm fine. Simultaneously, may you find uh, a biblical counselor to hope. Find a professional to steer you toward the person and work of Jesus, but has the skill set to, to truly lead you in, in a clinical and biblical understanding of what is going on in your lives. You are mad. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We see you. The Lord sees you. He knows, as Romans would tell us, the groaning and the aching as you long for the return of Christ to make this, the Apostle Paul understands this as he experiences the, throne, the thorn in his flesh that he asked repeatedly and over and over and over again for the Lord to remove it, but the Lord has chosen not to. Your suffering sister, your suffering brother should and is not wasted if you are in Christ Jesus. Also, how do we respond then to neighbors, friends, family, people who may visit us here at Mission Church who are wrestling with gender dysphoria or, um, or transgender? 
I would encourage you this week or the next several days um, that you would jot down questions and that in your MCs that you would get very practical in looking at all the things that I do not have simply time to cover uh, this morning. But I think that we need to really ask this question. And ultimately, let me say this, is that I, I think that we need to fight the drift toward one way or the other. That we need to fight the drift to hating humans. Who are experiencing this. Our temptation is to run just toward hate speech. Just toward bullying. Just toward a, a, a making fun of, of a, a ridiculing, of a, a making of a joke. Being grotesque. You know, we have nothing to do with our friends, family members, and neighbors who are struggling in this sin, let me be clear. Also, though, on the other side of that is that we need to fight the drift toward running toward affirmation of that sin. And that's where so many people who are professing to be followers of Jesus are actually running to. To say that it's not wrong, it's not sinful, that it's not against God, that love is loving, that God created you to be this way. Ladies and gentlemen, that is simply not true. And it can be really easy to set up here who, um, as a person, but uh, this is going to become more difficult as a friend, as a family member, as a son or a daughter eventually comes to possibly son of us and expresses to mom and dad, I I'm struggling with who I am on the inside. Does it match my biological body? Or I'm wanting to experience and to become a transgender we're seeing within Christendom so many parents who were once strong in their faith, who once believed in the biblical understanding of sex and gender, that once their kids begin to dabble into these things and to believe these things about themselves, that their parents are dropping their the theology in order to embrace not only their kids, but to embrace their kids' sin. We must fight the drift toward hatred. Simultaneously, we must fight the drift toward affirmation. There can be no such thing as true love without truth. And so friends, we, we cannot back away from the reality of the severity of how that this goes against God's created plan. It is sinful. It goes against his created order. So ultimately, our response should be this, is that how should we handle this? Is that we should handle it like Jesus. I think about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This woman has been with several men by the time that Jesus meets with her. He sits down with her, and he does not dance around the issue, but calls her sin, sin. He does not affirm her sin. He calls her to a true and better life inside of him, inside of Jesus. But he has empathy for her. He has compassion for her. 
The times that Jesus gets red face is toward people who profess to know his father, God. When Jesus is interacting with people in the world, then, and then his, his composure is one of patience and, of, again, of empathy. He is holding on to truth. As the Bible has told us, there cannot be love without the truth of the Scripture. So we do not back away from saying that this is not true, but you need to understand this. Our culture has taken this upon themselves to believe that our friends that are struggling in this sin, that this is their identity. And so therefore, to have a relationship with them must mean that you affirm the sin in their lives. And yet we must never do that. There's a theological issue here that you must get as well. And it's this. Why should we care what people want to do with their bodies? Why should we care? Be whatever you want to be. I'm not going to do that. But if you want to do that, you go, you do you. But why should we care? We should care because of this. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a direct assault against an almighty holy God because this is what it means. It means that in the creation that God got it wrong. That you can be a man trapped inside of a woman's body. That you can be a woman trapped inside of a man's body meant that as he knitted you together in your mother's womb, as he formed you and made you, that God almighty got it wrong. And if that means if God got that wrong, then rip all of the pages out of the Bible because he is wrong on everything. What in the heck are we doing here? I could have slept in. It's raining. It was kind of nice hitting the roof this morning. Real dark. You puzzle up and watch a movie. I don't know what we're doing here. If this Bible isn't true, if God isn't who he says that he is, if Jesus isn't who he says that he is, if the Bible is not true, chapter and verse, every dot, every iota, every question mark, every period, every bit of it, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation, what is it, 21, 22, something like that, is that all of that is true and is revealing God's character. Do you know why we are anti-abortion and believe that it is evil? Is one, it's murder. But two, is because it is a war against the image bearers of God. Likewise, did you know that's why we're against racism and believe that racism is evil? It, it's because you're expounding hate toward an image bearer of God. That's why we're anti-racist. That's why we're anti-abortion. And so if you sit here today and you're like, man, I can't stand abortion, or, or man, racism is evil. Even my non-Christian friends, you can mention all kinds of social issues, but you talk about racism, and all of my friends, non-Christians, will all say that is evil, that is detestable, and, and I'm like, but why? If you believe that abortion is wrong, if you believe that racism is evil, then likewise, we must believe that, that these experiences as well are also evil. Why? Because it goes against the creative order. It goes against the image bearer of God. Now, 
God is not anti-feelings. But he will not share his throne with anyone. And so we must hold, closed hand, the truth of God's word. This is who God is. This is what God knows to be the best for his creation. And yet, we must be open-handed in empathy and compassion. Not filled with hate, but empathy. Because that's what we see in Jesus. If you've been here at Mission at any time, today I'm sitting down. And this has been really hard for me. I'm sitting down because I'm not hurt. I'm sitting down because I believe that this is the posture of what it should be like. Is that it's really easy to blast people with truth but not have compassion and grace when you don't know anyone wrestling with that sin. It's another thing to hold a truth and be hope and handed with empathy and compassion when you're sitting across a coffee table with somebody. My natural tendency is to get loud. You guys know that. Very passionate about these things. Very passionate about Jesus. But sharing someone the gospel who's wrestling with any of these things is again to hold to the truth and yet be open-handed to say, I have no idea what you must be going through. But I know that there's a greater hope than that battle that is waging on in your heart and in your life and in your mind than you're experiencing right now. I have wept this week thinking about what it must be like because I've experienced my own body dysphoria thinking about what it must be like with friends, neighbors, family members who are wrestling with those things and yet have no hope because they do not have Christ. There's something different when you get behind a keyboard yelling, screaming at these people and then having someone at your dinner table. So church, we we have some things that we have to really figure out about who we are as a collective body. First Corinthians chapter six. And just follow along with me as I I promise I'm about done. Or do you not know, chapter six, verse nine, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral nor adulterers nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As we talked about that list, that is not an exhaustive list. You could add into that transgender. But let's keep reading. And some were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So all of my friends and family and neighbors who are experiencing depression, and I'm not saying that those things are sin. What I'm saying is, is that oftentimes these things lead to things that can be sinful being transgender. But the hope that we have in this passage, and if you're wrestling with any of these things here today, is to be able to look at you today and say this, friend, the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But some were some of you. So the gospel Guess what it does? It, it saves those who are body shaming themselves. The gospel can save those who are depressed and stressed and anxiety filled. The, the gospel is hope for those who hate themselves. Uh, the gospel empowers a person who's wrestling with their identity of who they are on the outside and who they are on the inside. The gospel will empower that person to live a life that is faithful to Jesus over what they may or may not feel. The, the gospel is powerful enough. Jesus is powerful enough to look at a person who has possibly been living transgender for years upon years upon years upon years and for him to arrest their hearts and for them to come to the reality that they made a sinful mistake and that they're going to live the rest of their lives as the biological male or female that God had created them to be. We are the hope. Jesus is the hope for the broken body. Let us worship that Jesus. Let's pray.